You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Go back a few generations, and odds are that your family lived and worked on a farm. Of course, nowadays, that's no longer the case. It's down to single digits, I believe, uh, to people who actually work in agriculture. But we're all greatly affected by the culture of agriculture. So we're going to go back to our roots with USU professors Joyce Kincaid, Evelyn Funda, and Lynn McNeil. They're authors of a new book, Farm, a Multimodal Reader which explores what farms, farming, and farmers mean to us as a culture. The book moves from the Jeffersonian idealism of the yeoman farmer. Uh, He believed, uh, quote, cultivators of the earth are the chosen people of God, to the literature of the 19th and 20th centuries, Thoreau's Beanfield, Cather's Prairie Novel, Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, as well as contemporary memoirs like Farm City, to current issues such as agribusiness and chemical farming. We'll also consider farm and music, art, ecology, children's and young adult literature, advertising, and print culture. Victory Garden posters are an example, folklore, and more. And uh, we are going to uh, talk about, hopefully, your farming roots. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. Joyce Kincaid joins us, uh, professor of English at Utah State University. Thanks for joining us. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having us. And Evelyn Fonda uh, comes back to the program, associate professor of uh, English. Good guess, morning. Tom. American literature. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And uh, Lynn McDill joins us again. Uh, she is an instructor in the folklore program. Happy to be Thank here. Thank you. And uh, each of you author of uh, other books. And um, But uh, this, this, of course, is a very interesting uh, maybe we could illustrate the, the point that I was just making. For example, I only have to go back two generations, and my family's on a farm. But we've moved off the farm. I guess that would, that would be the same with a lot of people. Evelyn, you grew up on a farm, I believe. That's right, yes. And, and write about it in your, in your book, Weeds. That's right. My, my family was actually a, a family of Czech immigrants who came out to Idaho, um, originally around the Buell area, and then moved up to Gem County, north of Boise. And um, so I'm actually the first off-farm gen- off generation, actually. Subtitle is A Farm Daughter's Lament. Yes, of my uh, book, yeah. Weeds. And uh, part of that lament is, I guess, the passing of that way of life. You're, you're, and your family sort of took the, the path that a lot of families took. Your, your family's now off the farm. Yes, yes. Um, and it is... You know, it, it's um, a lament, but it's also sort of looking at the complexities of the issue. Mm-hmm. That um, it's it's who we think we are as a as a nation in many ways, but it's also um, it it has its its dark sides to it. Yeah. So, approximately ninety three percent of Americans in Thomas Jefferson's time were on the farm. That's right. And now it's around one percent. It's less than one yeah. percent. Um, so much so that in uh, before two thousand. The Census Bureau said that farmers were statistically insignificant, was mm. their term, and um, began lumping them together as they were counting them with fisheries and with uh, forestry because the numbers were so small. Yeah. Of course, agriculture still goes on, but it's, it's big business. It's mm-hmm. that's, that's a lot of what happens. Joyce Kincaid, you were raised on a farm as well, right, in Missouri? Absolutely, in Missouri. Uh, my family came from Scotland in 1705 and uh, went to the colonies, settled in Virginia, 
and uh, one of my ancestors fought in the American Revolutionary War, and his wife was actually an Indian captive as well. Uh, eventually migrated to Kentucky and then to my family place in, in Missouri. Hmm. And what was the family's trajectory off the farm? Do, do you still have relatives who run the farm, or do you... You're out of agriculture. Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, Harry S. Truman Dam came in, and so mm. our farm is underwater now. <laughs> and so that was a very sad uh, moment for us when we when we lost the farm that my family had bought from the Indians along the Osage and Grand Rivers. Yeah. Wow. So that goes back. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Lynn McNeil, you were raised in the suburbs. Yep. That's right. No, no farming in my background, yeah. unfortunately. But if you trace your ancestry back. Yeah, that's true. I imagine that's true for a lot of people. But um, my, I pretty much have to go to great-grandparents or earlier to find folks who are farming. My mother's family, her grandparents immigrated here from Ireland and came from a sheep farm right smack in the middle of the Ring of Kerry in Ireland. And I got to visit them and their farm in 2002. Um where I got to learn fun things like they separate their sheep from the neighbor's sheep with different spray paint colors on their <laughs> rear ends, which was fun. Um, and that family farm goes back to the 1500s. They've been on that same land in those same buildings for you know centuries, which is cool. But of course, when my great-grandparents came here, they settled in New York, in Queens, and stayed there until my mother moved out to California. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was born and raised. Yeah, I like to think I'm Shifting back a little bit, I'm the first new member of my family to really take up gardening as a hobby, and that was sort of an interesting intersection of hobbies as I was working on this book when Joyce and Evelyn brought me in for that folklore perspective was the first year that I was really focusing on gardening as a hobby, and it was just sort of lots of serendipitous intersections mm-hmm. to in the, that sort of very microcosmic way to be acting out some of the the trends that I was writing about and reading about with these guys. Yeah. I know a couple of young men uh, who don't have farming backgrounds, but that's their ambition. After college, they want to go out, buy a farm, and and go to that life. That's interesting that that some people at least are going back to that that idea. Well, that's that romanticism about what the farm can provide in terms of an ethical lifestyle – uh, a noble lifestyle even, and, and that goes back to the Jeffersonian ideal of the noble farmer. I wonder, uh, maybe you can compare and contrast what farming meant. You, and you have a chapter here, to, you know, taking from early early times up to Jefferson. And then around the time of Jefferson, this, this farming gets intertwined with what it means to be an American. Yes. So, so I wonder, Evelyn, talk about that. Yeah. I mean, he really sets the stage for a, a, a notion of a farmer citizen. Um, he truly believed the idea that if you were a farmer, you were a better citizen because, as he said, you were wedded to the land. And that if you were a citizen, you were a better farmer. Um, th- th- those those two things were so mixed together for him that they were inseparable. And in many ways, that's really become a a widely adopted kind of notion nationally. And even though less than 1% of us now are, you know, directly involved in farming, I think we still believe that largely as a culture. Mm -hmm. Ben Franklin, I I read this as a brief quote, one of those in boxes. Uh, He said, there are three ways a nation can gain wealth. One is, as Rome did, by plunder. He said, that's wrong, that's robbery. Another is by 
being a merchant, right, mm-hmm. trading, and mm-hmm. he said that that often is accompanied by dishonesty. Mm-hmm. So the only really noble way to do it is is as a farmer. This coming from a man who was a essentially a merchant, right, a tradesman, a yeah, a printer mm-hmm. by trade. Um, yeah, I mean, he and and Jefferson both. I mean, they they were suspicious of anything that wasn't farming. Uh, for Jefferson's part, his great worry and concern was manufacturing. He thought that manufacturing was best left in Europe because of that kind of inherent dishonesty that he felt came with that that kind of life, and um, that instead farming was was a truly American act. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we could skip ahead to one of the later chapters, Joyce. Uh, and this is maybe the impetus for the for the book. Um, there, there's a back to the land movement. There's a kind of a new romantic idea, going back to our roots, I guess, about what farming means. And well, certainly, and and I think it's just what you you mentioned is are the two young men you know who who have a, a lifetime goal of being on the farm. So that's imbued with. Um, uh, a philosophy of knowing where your food comes from and uh, also producing that food ethically. Uh, there there are cartoons in The New Yorker now about the farm animals, uh, for, like one cow says to the other, well, why do you think we're, what are we being raised humanely for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is good. And then I... I read an article recently about uh, the ethics of farming and and uh, someone saying, well, you know, these animals only have one bad day mm-hmm. in, in their lives <laughs> right there. So there, it's that whole notion of, of living ethically. Uh, there's a, a new term being an ethicurean, not epicurean, but ethicurean. And also the, the term locavore, which was the word of the year in 2008, about eating locally. And that also has something to do about uh, fossil fuel use. So can you shorten the transportation time of the food that you eat or produce so that you're not uh, contributing to pollution of fossil fuels? Yeah. And of course, we have a lot of chemicals now in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Didn't mm-hmm. used to be the case. And mm-hmm. so that brings up all raft of ethical issues right. as well. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in the surbur- suburbs even who are doing that mini kind of <laughs> garden or uh, chickens in the backyard. So Williams-Sonoma actually has mobile designer chicken coops <laughs> that a person can can purchase uh, for the backyard. And, and that is really an interesting change in, in our American culture. Even Martha Stewart is very famous now for raising her own chickens. Yeah. So, you know, if, if Martha Stewart can do it, it's mainstream. It's mainstream. <laughs> well, and it's, we it's see a good thing. Yeah. in the popular culture chapter in the book, I believe it is, uh, talking about farmers markets, which have just grown exponentially. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, starting in about 2008. Was that when that big mm-hmm. boom hit? Just by leaps and bounds as people look for that locavore, capability, knowing where their food has come from, even for people who can't grow their own food. And some of the the farmer's markets posters that are included in the book um, describe eating locally and growing your own food as, as homeland security. Hmm. So I think we right. see, you know, a big uh, a sense of sort of a global movement of not being dependent, not, you know, 
contributing to pollution, not all of, all of that stuff. I think that's a really interesting element of, of all of this as well, that there's a perceived sense of security and self-sustainability as well in all of this. Yeah, those posters are uh, interesting. It shows food, sort of a roadside stand or maybe a farmer's market, and and the caption is Homeland Security. Yeah. And those That's came out idea. right after 9-11, yeah. in, the, in the years following 9-11. Yeah. I wonder, Lynn, um, if your impulse is shared by a lot of people and maybe it connects to the ideas we've been talking about. You, you talked about how you, you wanted to plant a garden. and Yeah, definitely. And I think there's a... For me, certainly, and I imagine I'm not unique in this, there was a definite sense of just disconnect. You know, I'm living here now in Cache Valley, which is wonderfully agrarian and at a, you know, school that's an agricultural institution. And I was definitely one of those kids who, I mean, I had a vague sense of where food came from. I wasn't one of those kids who we tell stories about who show up to, say, the Living History Farm at the American West Heritage Center and have no idea that bacon comes from pigs. Mm -hmm. And that's their horrible moment of clarity on their school field trip. (laughs) Um, So I wasn't that disconnected, but definitely food came from grocery stores for me. And the more people I met who didn't have that disconnect, um, the more it was really intriguing. And for the first time this year, I'm more excited than I should be probably. A bunch of the seeds I've started this spring were seeds that I harvested last year. And somehow in my mind now, I could survive in the wilderness. Yeah. That's such a, an right. astonishing life right. skill yeah. to propagate one's own food supply from year to year. I mean, I'm sure my six tomato plants wouldn't keep yeah. me alive for long <laughs> right. in the wilderness, but still, right. it's a major accomplishment. So. It, is, it is a big step, though, if you've, you know, if you've gone from food just comes from the supermarket to now you're growing your own and, and now you're propagating some of those same seeds. Um, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we will uh, take you back to colonial America. I was just tickled to, to read about uh, some of the early settlers who were bad farmers. Uh, they didn't even want to farm. Uh, Captain Smith, in fact, in Jamestown, I was reading in the book, uh, had to make people farm, <laughs> which doesn't jibe with our ideal of, of the farm. There are some people who push back uh, on this ideal. We'll talk about some of those. Talk about uh, land-grant institutions as well. A very important ideal and ideal. Homesteading, a lot to talk about here. We'd love to hear your farm experience. How far do you need to go back? Most people can trace their family back to the farm. Some 93% of Americans in Jefferson's time were on the farm. Now it's less than 1%. But the ideal still resonates. And Farm, a multimodal reader, the book we're talking about explores what farms, farming, and farmers mean to us as a culture. Back following the break. Hi, it's Lynn Rossetto-Casper. This week, we're looking at the real world of the chef, and I'm not talking about being in front of a TV camera. To be a chef, you need to be running a kitchen, and you need to love to cook. The Spotted Pig's April Bloomfield joins us. That's this week on The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. website now showcases the scenic vistas our state is known for, from the Red Rock of Monument Valley to the Blue and Green Mountains of northern Utah. Utah Public Radio would like to thank artist Allison Hanover for her designs. Visit us online at upr.org. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now offering a ham and cheese demi-baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A new book is out, Farm, a Multimodal Reader explores what farms, farming, and farmers mean to us as a culture. And we've talked a bit about the Jeffersonian ideal. We'll talk a little bit about literature of the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, contemporary memoirs, and uh, current issues such as agribusiness and uh, chemical farming. Also get into folklore and uh, other uh, ways that we can see the culture of farming. This affects us all. Uh, All you have to do is go back just a few generations for most of us, and we're on the farm. A few more for you, Lynn, I guess. You'd go back to Ireland, but mm-hmm. uh, but your family was on the farm, still is on the farm. Absolutely, yep. Um, and uh, if you, even if you aren't on the farm, doesn't even don't even know where your food comes from, this idea and this ideal still affects you. So the number is 1-800-826-1495. We'd love to get your perspective, your story, your farm story, your family story at 1-800-826-1495. We're talking with uh, USU professors Joyce Kincaid, Evelyn Funda, and Lynn McNeil. We do have a caller, Betty from Washington County. We'll alert our guests to put their headphones on. Betty, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Thank you. I uh, still am an owner of a family farm back in Missouri. My sister and I uh, have this this farm that our grandfather started a pretty long time ago. My father left the farm after college, but um, he took it over when his parents died. And we have a share crop situation where, where we have people that live near the area and uh, do the work, and then we share half and half with them in the profit. I've had lots of pressure over the last few years, especially after my parents died, to sell the farm, to, you know, get out of this uh, situation. It still makes some money every year. It doesn't make a lot of money. And, um, but I feel like it's my legacy to pass on. I don't even feel like I own it. I feel like, um, maybe my great-grandchildren own it. Uh, I have a feeling that someday in the future, somebody's going to be really happy to have a little over 500 acres in northeast Missouri where crops can be grown. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You say you don't even feel like you own it. I'm sorry? You say you don't You don't even feel like you own it. It's 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 that no, that went like to your family. No, I feel like it's to pass on. Yeah. Uh, you know, it came from my grandparents through my parents to me. I feel like I'm passing it on to my children, grandchildren, and on to the future. And I hope that all of the generations that follow me will feel the same about this this plot of land. Appreciate that, Betty. Very very interesting okay. to get your your perspective on your on your land. Okay. Uh, thank you. Joyce, that You're probably well, that, resonates with you. Oh, that that resonates with me enormously, and and it's that concept uh, that we're stewards of the land, that we're we're only on the land temporarily, and the land abides, and and we must take care of it. Um, 
So uh, there's an annual award, for example, that uh, the Farm Bureau gives out to to people who are good stewards of the land who take care of it. And this is about, uh, again, making sure we're good neighbors. I think Wendell Berry says that you want to make sure you've got a good neighbor upstream from you, Uh, someone who's not allowing the cattle to go in the riparian sections of the stream, for example, and pollute. So that, I thought what Betty said was was really remarkable. Um, this idea of a connection to the land as well as to the to lifestyle and, and to your occupation, is that, do we find that in, in Europe, pre-America, or is that a more of an American ideal, do you think? Or Well, I mean, I think that our idea of it connected to a national identity is, is uniquely American, but certainly, I mean, I think that Joyce can talk to the fact that it's it goes back to ancient times. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So I I wrote the chapter on our ancient literature, and uh, the farmer's first almanac, for example, a Sumerian tablet of 1500 before Common Era, and advice from a a farmer to his son about how to be a good steward of the land. So people— People who are farming understood that you have to care for the land, and it will then care for you. Uh, it's interesting to think of the first almanac going that back that far, but I, I, I guess it's it's logical. You would want to collect some knowledge. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. What What's fun though is that uh, uh, the sense of literary uh, play comes into it comes into action in some in some of those early. Uh, pieces. So we include a, a, a lyric poem, the disputation between the hoe and the plow, <laughs> in which e- each farm implement actually argues that one is better than the other. It, it might be more uh, like um, something, a contemporary like playing the dozens uh, and say, oh, well, I'm better than you are. <laughs> let me let me bring it forward to colonial times. As I mentioned before the break, mm-hmm. This was something I hadn't. I, I just had assumed since I have in my mind this Jeffersonian ideal, and so I thought that the early settlers in America came to farm, but in Jamestown, they had to be forced to farm. That's right. Yeah, I mean John Smith, Captain John Smith, very famous for um, the Virginia colonies, basically initiated a work or starve policy. Because remember that a lot of these people, and, and you know, this is partly John Smith's own fault because he was advertising in Europe to say, look, we need men to come over to America. Um, this was an economic prospect. They were trying to get people to come. And a lot of these people who were coming were noblemen and or, or um, they were a, of some sort of upper class. And they thought this was an easy peasy kind of lifestyle. They could come over. They could make a million. They could start a new world. But the reality is, is they had to eat. <laughs> and um, in order to do that, a lot of them were not trained to do that, hmm. to farm. And so it was really this kind of sense of, you know, put up or shut up kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in that case, these were aristocrats looking to make their fortune, I guess. Mm-hmm. Up in Massachusetts, it was a lot of tradespeople, right? That were, That's right. That then right. had to learn how to, how to farm. Yes, our famous it, Thanksgiving story, of course, yeah. is a story of failure to farm. <laughs> but it then became our ideal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I went, uh, uh, Betty's experience, and by the way, we'd love to hear your experience, your, your farm story, what the land and the farm means to you, and how many generations do you have to go back to, uh, to, to 
put your family on the farm, or are you one of these people back to the farm, farm people like some of the young men that, that I know? The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. The book is Farm, a Multimodal Reader, and we're talking with USU professors Joyce Kincaid, Evelyn Funda, and Lynn McNeil. So, uh, Joyce, first to you, Betty's question reminded me that there there's a running theme, I think, in, in many families and therefore sort of in the in, out there in the culture about this this loss of the farming lifestyle and and what that means. And, and a lot of times you hear that this is detrimental to the to the next generation. You know, a farm is a good place to raise a family and and some of those values are being lost. This is sort of out there in the in the air. If not for that the dam going in, you know, your family might still be on the farm. Do you do you, do you have those discussions in your, you know, if you go back a few generations in your family? Well, I think certainly that was a, a question in my family because there were there were only myself and my sister. And so as females, we weren't expected to stay on the farm. And I hung on to that rather, uh, I gripped onto that farm connection for some time. And it's, it's one of the reasons that when I started college that I thought I would be majoring in agriculture and go into agribusiness or agrojournalism or something that would keep myself connected to the farm. And then the, the whole business with the, the dam in Benton County, Missouri really took that out of my hands. Uh, but I think that what people think about going back to the farm is that it's a pure pure lifestyle that they want to unplug from a corporate culture, for example, and, and get back to that, that pure, pure way of being. Uh, but people often do not survive when they go back to the farm uh, like that, because it is darn hard work. And there, there's tragedy and drama on the farm. You've got to be used to animals dying, even though that you care for them uh, with all your heart. And But there are also successes. And I think what Lynn said about that joy of creating something is is something that can resonate with many of us. Mm. Evelyn, uh, I know this is a theme in your book. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, you, I'm sure you've thought about this. What What is lost going from 93% down to less than 1%? You know, I think that's, that's different for everybody. But for me, it was this sense that... Um, here I was, I was an only, an only child, and I was an only daughter, of course, and an only granddaughter on my, on my father's side. And so, like Joyce, you know, I wasn't really expected to be a farmer. So I grew up in this situation in which um, my father knew full well, as I was growing up, that this was the end. And that was a kind of, of sentiment that was always sort of, um, you know, that's what, that was mother's milk in some ways. And it wasn't that I was blamed or anything. It was this sense that, that it's a man's world. And so for me, the farm brings up a whole lot of gender questions and, and gender ideas about why is it that I couldn't be a farmer? Why is it that I only knew of one farm woman who was a horse breeder? Um, that independently women couldn't do that. And it's interesting because you know, to go back to statistics and, and Census Bureau numbers, um, there is an upswing now in, in farming. And it's in two sectors. And one of them is female farmers being primary operators. And the other is what we would call like micro farms, those farms that are five acres or less, those sort of truck farms, the, the farmer's market farms. Um, they're 
increasing in numbers for the first time. We actually have an upswing in census numbers. Interesting. It looks like it'll be sustained. Well, I guess we don't know at this point. Yeah, we don't know, but I'm, I, I sort of look at that as a really hopeful sign. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, things have been pretty dire, I think, in American agriculture for a long time, and I, I look at this as a positive. I think that's something that I really like about this book is I think it would be easy to to do a book about farming, especially a historical or cultural book about farming, and focus entirely on the past. And this book highlights, if nothing else, that there is farm culture, there is agriculture permeating our contemporary lives. It, I, one of the examples that stands out to me is the Peterson Brothers yeah. <laughs> um, YouTube videos. They're farmers farmer in Kansas. And I grow it. I, exactly, right? Um, I'm three, not familiar with this. What, what is this? There are three brothers, Evelyn knows right, better right. than I do, who live on a, or who are farming yes. in, in Kansas and who create parody videos of popular music in and around their their farm lives and they're very well edited and cleverly written and very very popular on YouTube and it's just you know three young maybe 20 something yeah. guys who who are fully embracing this farm lifestyle and who are not living what anyone would call a old-fashioned lifestyle they're YouTube sensations mm-hmm. and and I think that's a a nice example of how that and that's not to deny that we've certainly lost, you know, a, a connection to farming, but that it's alive and well in maybe some new guises. Hmm. And their most famous video is a, a parody of I'm sexy and I know it. Um, <laughs> and the the parody is I'm farming and I grow it. Yeah. And it's it's a very funny video. I'm, I'm going to look that up. The yeah. Peterson Brothers. Google yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. It's good. yeah. Tom, have you played Farmville? I have not played Farmville. <laughs> I've heard of it. So this You've is another example of, of popular culture. <laughs> yes, yes. And so people are virtually farming on that. There, there's another clever one that's a, a satire on the Matrix, but it's called The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> that is clever. Yeah. This, I'm going to have to look up these when we, when we get off the air here. And you certainly can look these up as you're listening, and we'd love you to uh, join the conversation here. We're talking about farms, farm culture specifically. What, does, uh, what do farms, farming, and farmers mean to us as a culture? The book is Farm, a Multimodal Reader. We're talking with USU professors Joyce Kincaid, Evelyn Funda, and Lynn McNeil. I want to talk a little bit, get into some of the folklore. Some, some. I want, would love to talk, and I'll get you talking, mm-hmm. Lynn, about uh, farmers' daughters jokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if there's a clean one you can, uh. you you can tell. So look that up, <laughs> and and then uh, water witching, which is a very interesting. You know, a lot of people are are into to that and what that means. But before we go to break, I want to get back to this idea of a resurgence and in interest in farm culture, and that's. I guess this book hit the wave perfectly, Joyce. You you had the idea before some of this was 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 cresting. Yes, but you know I might mention Mary Jane Butters here, uh, Mary Jane Farms, and Mary Jane Butter attended Utah State, but is uh, uh, located up by, by Mos- Moscow, Idaho now, and has a Mary Jane Farms journal and a, has built a whole enterprise empire on the farm girl and so i think evelyn and i are both farm sisters and we get almost daily bulletins from the farm (laughs) sisters who are blogging about their their lives on farms and mary jane really saw herself as sort of a farm version of the martha stewart so mary jane butters has you can go get mary jane butters sheets um 
because she's really sort of creating this as a kind of lifestyle. That's what her goal is, is to get us to think about this as a real lifestyle. Interesting. Yeah, these are. I, I've been out of the loop. I'll, uh, I'm, I'm going to di- dive into some of this. We have another caller, Georgia, in Cedar City. Uh, Georgia, glad you called. Go ahead with your well, question. Good morning. Card. I've been kind of getting ready for work, and so I haven't heard everything. I may have missed a little bit of the show, but I did grow up on a small farm, and I, I was, uh, our, the first boy was in the middle of a family, and my dad was very supportive. I helped him a lot on the farm. My older sister kind of was the house assistant to my mother, and then I, you know, we were pretty small farm. I milked cows by hand and some of that sort of thing. But as I grew up and went, you know, went off to college, I, I thought about studying agriculture, but Dad also said, you know, <laughs> even if you have a degree, you don't make much money at this. <laughs> so I, you know, I didn't end up making that choice. But I, I think it was really a hard chance for women, unless you were really unusual, to, to be recognized on farms. Um, you know, uh, my dad always called me his best boy, so it shows you where the sexism kind of was, not not terrible. Um, but I, I think it was really difficult for women to inherit, to get a fair deal, you know, in the farm structure. And so I, I think it's interesting now that there's a lot more space for people to choose careers and genders not first. And so I think a lot of, you know, I think women are doing some really interesting things with small farming and, and other things today. I just, I think it makes it a lot more fascinating and more interesting. Appreciate your uh, your your history there, Georgia. And uh, enjoying the show this morning. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Georgia. So, so Georgia's uh, put her finger on something you were saying, Evelyn, a, a trend toward women going into farming. Yeah, when I was growing up, I, I knew of one woman who was a horse breeder, and she was sort of thought of in, in our community as kind of an oddity. And, you know, there were all these sort of sort of vague kind of insinuations about her and and, you know, whether or not she'd ever be married and that kind of thing. And so to, to move from that in the in the 60s to now where, you know, the highest sector, as I say, is is women coming in as principal op- operators. That's a huge turnaround for me. Mm. Um, and of course, here's a book about farming written by three women. Yeah, yeah, that, that, is, that is true. Before we go to break, uh, Joyce, I want to bounce this quote, which is in the publicity materials, I think, I think it's maybe even the, in the book, from Michael Pollan, of course, author of Cooked, An Omnivore's Dilemma and the Botany of Desire. One of his concerns is to connect us with our food. Uh, he said, when I began writing about agriculture in the late 80s and 90s, I quickly figured out that no editor in Manhattan thought the subject timely or worthy of his or her attention, that I'd be better off avoiding the word entirely, talking about food something people then still had some use for and cared about, yet oddly never thought to connect to, to the soil and work of farmers. So, and I believe early in the program you said that's, that's, that's changing. I wonder why. Well, I, I think people are starting to understand now that it's the culture of agriculture that we're interested in and that as soon as we start looking at the food issue, which Michael Pollan has done brilliantly, we have to go back to the origins of the food, and that that's bringing the farm back back to the fore for us. Yeah, I guess this goes back to Lynn, what you were saying. That you know, and we know a lot of people like this. That you just kids just assume <laughs> that uh, food comes from the supermarket because that's what they see. Yeah, and I think one of the things that that this book does really well, and the the intent of the book certainly is to to highlight that 
agricultural science is not a purely scientific endeavor. It's a humanistic endeavor. It's a cultural mm-hmm. endeavor. Right. We have this this permeates so much beyond simply the the biology of growing food and then eating it, and and even the economy of acquiring it. It's really we're we're steeped in it symbolically and and meaningfully in a lot of ways. And getting at that in addition to the 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 processes behind it, I think, is really a, a wonderful thing and something that I think a lot of students will enjoy. Well, that's a perfect segue for our break. When we come back, we'll get into some of that culture through folklore. And we'll talk with Lynn some more. Talking with Lynn McNeil, Joyce Kincaid, and Evelyn Fonda, USU professors. Uh, Their book is Farm, a Multimodal Reader. We'd love to get your perspective as well, your farm experience. Uh, Perhaps that's your ancestors' experience, or it could be a current experience. Uh, And how does the culture of agriculture affect you? The number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com. More following break. Are you a discerning music fan? Bad songs about the Irish smiles, uh, what you got the Tura and the Lura, and more Lura. I mean, it's crazy, sung by men with high voices. Tired of the musically uninteresting? Want me to sing some of that to you here? Yeah, maybe later. How much later? Later, later. Okay. Worthy, overly earnest? Write songs, try to make the world a better place. There's a contradiction there, partner. We'll have you singing a different tune this weekend. Saturday evening at 6 and Sunday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hello, this is Terry Guy, Business Development Manager at Utah Public Radio. Together, contributing members and program sponsors make public radio possible. If your business would like to be recognized on air for supporting UPR, please call 435-797-3215. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about the farm. Go back a few generations. Odds are your family lived and worked on a farm. In Jefferson's time, it was 93% of all Americans. Now it's less than 1%. And uh, some people think that uh, we've lost something in that. Um, For example, we just talked before the break about Michael Pollan, who wants to connect us back to our food. And uh, we have been talking on the program that uh, perhaps that is happening. This book talks about the uh, culture of agriculture, what farms, farming, and farmers mean to us as a culture. And uh, so we are going to get to now into some folklore. Always fun to talk about. Our guests are uh, Joyce Kincaid, Evelyn Funda, and Lynn McNeil from Utah State University. You're welcome to join the uh, program. You have uh, about 10 minutes to to, uh, get in the program with us. We'd love to get your farming experience. What does uh, agriculture mean to you, even if perhaps you aren't on the farm? The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or uh, upraxis at gmail.com. Before we get into some of the folklore, during the break, we had an interesting little discussion here about, uh, about women on the farm. Of course, we have Three talented women here have written a book about farming, and, and two of you have direct experience. Joyce, you were saying you were known as a tomboy. Yes, I think that was just standard uh, because I was out in the field with my dad, and, and I think my older sister gratefully gave up driving the tractor when I was really interested in doing that kind of work. So, uh, you know, there are three women in my family, my mother, my older sister, and, and me, and my dad. And so we just had to get out and do what had to be done, if that was bucking bales or if that was uh, castrating hogs. You know, it, it could be dirty work, but we we had to get it done in order for the farm to, to work. Hmm. Now, I, I have in my mind, 
obviously inaccurate, the idea of the strict division of labor on, on farms, at least if you go back far enough. You know, the men were out in the field, the women were in the kitchen. And, and that's actually more my experience. Unlike Joyce, um, I, I was very much kept off the farm by my father. And I think that that's because it was a class issue for my family. Being Czech immigrants, um, they were very much trying to escape the idea that in the old country, women who worked on the farm were seen, you know, that that was a peasant lifestyle. And so if you were able, if you had the luxury to keep the woman in that domestic sphere, in the garden at, at the most, then that was a class distinction. You had you had arrived in some way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You you said you were your your dad called you his grease monkey. Yeah, yeah. He would, um, you know, if he was out in the shop working on the combine or something like that, I was always there because I wanted to be on the farm. I yeah. wanted to be out there. So yeah, he was always whenever I was hanging around, he'd say my grease monkey, and he'd tell me to go get a, you know. Tool or something like yeah. that. Let's get into some of the folklore. It's always interesting to view any subject through folklore. I wonder if you found a farmer's daughter story. This, everybody knows what everybody these stories knows. are, right? I, I imagine so. Um, <clears throat> it, it ties in nicely to the, the question of gender. On farms, we have this sort of classic character of the lusty farmer's daughter who is, you know, um, going after men often who are stopping by the farm, men who are coming by. The example in the book is um, a man campaigning for county sheriff coming by the the farmer's house and the farmer's daughter lies awake at night imagining this man in her house and decides she must go and, you know, tempt him into having some fun with her. And he, he rebuffs her advances, you know, knowing that he would lose, you know, the the support of his constituents in his campaign. And so thwarted, she goes out to the barn where there's a cow in heat and a bull who is not doing his duty. And she turns to the bull and says, what are you running for sheriff to? Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it's great. It's, I think, in, you know, folklore sort of serves as a distillation of of a lot of cultural ideas and, and stereotypes. And we see just even in the name farmer's daughter jokes that men were farmers and women were a farmer's something, a farmer's daughter, a farmer's wife, something like that. And one of the things that I think in in this joke certainly that we see is how you really couldn't detach, you know, a a gender or or an age group from the reality of farm life. So we, we see sort of this nature culture pull that, you know, Women and men are supposed to be lusty together, and that doesn't always work out, both in human endeavors and in animal endeavors. And we can sort of, you know, that we have the responsibility of someone campaigning for sheriff versus sort of the the way things might work more more naturally on the farm. We sort of see that contrasted, and the farmer's daughter character sort of emerges as a a symbol for that push and pull. I think hmm. we get into uh, water witching. Which is interested to get into that. We have a caller, uh, Bonnie in Sevier County. Bonnie, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, I just was listening to the program, and I have actually read part of this book, and um, I was really uh, interested because I read in the book that the short-handled hoe was uh, made illegal in the 70s, and I grew up in Sevier County on the end of a short-handled hoe in a beet field uh, that my dad owned, and so I called my dad and I said, hey, Dad, did you know that the short-handled beet hoe was made illegal? And said, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> so it was kind of a funny uh, experience. Anyway, it's a great book so far that I've been reading. I'm really enjoying it. Okay, thank you, Bonnie. Appreciate that. Thanks. 
Sounds like she spent a lot of time. Yeah, there's somebody out, out there. who is, uh, you know, been one of those girls out in the field and and worked those hoeing beats and those kinds of things. Yeah. What can you tell me about the short-handled hoe? Well, this is this goes back to Cesar Chavez. Um, the idea was that the immigrant workers, the the Mexican workers who were um, working on beet farms, the only way to weed the fields were with the shorthand hoe. And, and Cesar Chavez saw that as a, a symbol of their oppression. And what the shorthand hoe did was make them le- stoop over. And it was this sort of servile kind of position. And so for him, it wasn't just about the fact that these were – this was – the shorthandle hole create, hoe created um, debilitating sorts of, of problems with these workers, you know, whose backs were never the same. I mean, it, you know, they were crippled by this. But he also saw them sort of culturally crippled by this as a symbol as well. Hmm. Uh, Lynn, water witching. Yes. Um, you know, that's one of those examples of something that goes so far back into antiquity and yet it, it – it's surprising how often you find it here today. The the farmer that I did some ethnographic fieldwork with about it is a grape grower and winemaker in California. Um, interestingly, and this is just one of my favorite small points of connection, his property in um, Sonoma Valley in California has a Dr. Pierce's barn on it. Just we and yeah. we've used, and you have that on the cover. yeah artwork on the cover yeah. of the mm-hmm. book is is Cache Valley's Doctor Pierce's barn. So I think that's a nice you know serendipitous connection there. But um, it's he describes in the in the section of the book how he acquired the land that he originally wanted to be uh, cattle ranching on and eventually ended up growing grapes on. Um, the what land was su- supposed to not have water on it, and he is a traditional water witch and used a dowsing rod and went and found water and, of course, you know, agrees to buy the land at the it-has-no-water-on-it price and then finds the the water on it and has successful wells dug. And it's a wonderful accounting. You know, he's a very intelligent, scientifically-minded man. He, in addition to growing grapes, he works as um, uh, an ER nurse in a local hospital and says regularly, you know, every time he does it, he doesn't want it to work. He wants science to win out. But it works, and he has no explanation for it. And I, I know that we have dowsers and water witches here in Cache Valley who are doing the same kind of work, and it's it's an excellent example of something that will keep going as long as it's serving people's needs. So this would – I could see some – you might call them more urban people, consider themselves more educated, might look askance on this, might look down on him. Absolutely. You might have those same worries. I, I think so. I think that's why he sort of makes the – the, the perfect entree into this question of water witching because he himself is so ready to be skeptical about this. You know, he can't explain it and he wants to explain it. And he's, you know, not necessarily someone who's going to come across as, you know, mystical or, or new agey or anything like this. And yet it what it boils down to for him is it works. Mm-hmm. It's an accurate method of determining the location of water on land. And if it didn't work, he wouldn't do it. If it yeah. didn't work, a lot of people wouldn't do it. And yeah. it's it's really interesting. A, a pragmatic streak, which I imagine you'd find in a lot of absolutely among a lot of farmers. We just have about uh, thirty seconds left, uh, Joyce. The the book is out. I think there are courses being taught. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of interest in this. Right, right. Uh, and so the the course is called the Farm in Literature and Culture. 
And we just feel like we hit a, a really rising wave. Uh, the Atlantic Magazine just had an article a few months ago about chick lit is dead and that farm lit is in the ascendancy. So we really have all of those people who are, are on farms who are writing about that, both as memoirs and fiction, uh, to thank for this increasing emphasis on farm literature. We will uh, leave it there. Um, Joyce Kincaid, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Evelyn Funda, thanks. Thanks. And Lynn McNeil, thank Thank you. you. It's been uh, fun, as always. The book is Farm, a Multimodal Reader, and uh, it's it's out and available. Uh, Tomorrow on the program, we're going to continue a a similar discussion. Uh, National Geographic Magazine has an eight-part series coming out on global food issues, we're going to talk with the author, Jonathan Foley, from University of Minnesota. That's tomorrow on the program. I hope you'll join us. For producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. The weather is warming up, and it's time to revisit the colossal mistake again. We originally saw it hanging from the ceiling at Costco. In another store, we might have immediately noticed that the tent was bigger than a small convenience store, but in Costco, it was about the same size as a standard bag of dog food or marshmallows. I began to see images of my family in the wilderness around the glow of a campfire with a cozy 12-person tent as a backdrop. My children, who sometimes find creative ways to take revenge on their father, encouraged me to buy it. My wife, Barbara was not there. Barbara has poo-pooed proposed purchases of really cool family building things such as five-in-one foosball tables, an indoor inflatable hot tub, and an indoor paintball target range. She claims there's no room left in our house for such things, even though there's plenty of room left in the kitchen and the upstairs bathroom. I reasoned that a tent goes in the great outdoors where there's lots of space. I bought the tent. We discovered, however, that it's difficult to find public campsites that are big enough for Costco tents. So, sometimes we had to move the campsite picnic table inside the tent to get it up without it taking over adjacent campsites. Not that anyone would mind us taking over a little campsite real estate. We find that once we start setting up the tent, others nearby find it so entertaining that they pull up their little camp chairs and turn their backs on their own campfires just to watch our project unfold. It has several rooms, an upstairs and a pantry, and it can take a good part of the day to put it up, unless you want it to look like it does in the box. If that's the case, it can take two days. We have discovered camping isn't as easy as it looks. The part where you're supposed to sleep on the ground, for example, seems to be a problem. Most of the time we lay there wide awake, wondering what thought process we use to decide that for fun we should leave our comfortable beds and sleep on the ground outside. I also find that as soon as I'm comfortable and everyone is quiet, they must go to the bathroom. I try to make those impulses go away by thinking about such topics as, will the smell of smoke ever leave my clothes? And should I set fire to the tent in the morning? It doesn't work and I eventually have to get up and go off into the scary blackness. Going out by myself always gives me the creeps because I can never find a flashlight and I hear sounds everywhere. I'm not afraid of the dark, but I do find myself afraid of things that hide in the dark. On a recent camp out, a raccoon the size of a small bear strolled into our campsite. When I tried to scare him away, he reared up on his back legs and made a motion to me with his paws, like, You want some of me? Come on, big boy, bring it on. I wouldn't want to meet a raccoon like that in the darkness. 
What if there's a vengeful father deer waiting out there to charge me, creating a very embarrassing moment? Another problem is the rain. It seems it always wants to rain, not just on the outside of our tent, but also on the inside of it. In Boy Scouts, I learned that there are ways to stay dry, but I can never remember if the tarp you put under the tent is supposed to stick out or be tucked under. I also remember something about digging a tiny moat, but every defensive tactic I take seems to actually funnel water directly into the tent. Once I went as an adult chaperone on a scout campout. I went to the scout leader and humbly asked for help. No matter what happens, I always end up getting wet, I said. Please teach me the ways of the mountain man. He set up my tent with the proper tarps and rainflies and topped the setup off with a large tarp the size of an aircraft carrier that he suspended over my tent by tying it impressively to several nearby trees with real scout knots. The forecast was for sunny skies and no rain. The tiny tent looked impressive, shielded from everything. I crawled in the tent and reveled in the protection I had been granted by simply asking for help. I celebrated by digging a water bottle out of my backpack, and as I went to get a drink, the lid popped off, and I was immediately soaked within my dry universe. Despite the obstacles, we've had some good experiences. We get postcards from campers asking us if we'll be performing next in the same campsite, so we've earned some respect. We've taken a new camping approach, however, that seems to work better than anything we've tried before. We leave the tent at home, drive to the scenic setting, and enjoy it until the sun goes down. Then we drive to the nearest Costco, where we snag brand new tent chairs, kick back, and gaze at the already assembled five-room tents. We marvel at their beauty and wonder about the people who are capable of not only putting them up, but hanging them from ropes high above the floor. Sure, the nice people at Costco make us go home at closing, but it doesn't matter. We're clean, dry, and refreshed. And because we drive a station wagon and travel light, we have room to take home a real camping treat. One Costco-sized bag of marshmallows. This is Steve Eaton. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And stay tuned for The Splendid Table coming up today at 10 o'clock, followed by performance today at 11. It is um, now 10 o'clock. Thank you for listening.